feeling like? How are you doing? I'm doing decent. Oh, gosh, that's very qualified. If the Lions win tonight, can't be more excited. We haven't been tailgating, so I think we can talk about uh, some more test cell stuff for now. Sounds good. How about fuel systems? Okay, that's a good one. So what we'll need to do is talk a little bit about what it means as a fuel system in regards to when we talk through this podcast, we're going to be referring to where the fuel originates from all the way to where it's consumed in the test cell. So right, so the structure of the of the fuel system, if you like, the, the hardware and uh, some of the requirements for bringing fuel in and taking it to the engine. Yeah, and, and I guess you can separate into two pieces. The best way that we can walk through this is separate into two pieces. Fuel originating from the outside of the test cell as part of the system, the delivery system. And then number two is once the fuel's in the cell, what happens with it then? And that'll be the system in, within the cell or the delivery to the actual engine then. Right. So I suppose if we liken this, as we have done earlier, to different parts of a vehicle, the fuel system is, first of all, having a tank of some sort and then a delivery into the vehicle or a delivery into the test cell. Mm-hmm. So tank-wise, I've worked with test cells where we've had a tank in the room as a temporary solution to try or to try out a specific fuel and situations where we've had tanks outside storing a large amount of fuel for extended running. Yeah, you can look at it from a very simplistic point of view, comparing it with the automobile like you were talking about earlier. But, you know, you're basically talking about the delivery system could be as simple as a tank, a pump, a filter, a pressure regulator. Right. It just goes up from there in regards to complexity in the system. The one thing I do want to talk about, though, is keeping in mind that we've been talking about in the prior podcast about delivery of utilities such as water, electricity, Fuel is a whole new game because it presents challenges in regards to the design aspect of the safety means and mechanisms to prevent anything from happening or unplanned events, as they call it, because it's a flammable. It's, it's something that caused fire. It's also a liquid that contains a lot of chemicals that you don't want it to be leaking into areas um, mm. that aren't designed to handle it. So. I suppose in some cases you've got the hidden danger of if there was a slow leak and you've got a vapor buildup in the test cell in the in the structure of the room. It can get quite, I'm going to say, very explosive at that point and can become extremely dangerous. Oh, yeah. And again, we'll we'll touch base as we go through as we talk about the system. Right. So so let's start at the delivery side of things. So when you're when you're thinking about the fuel system, there's some questions or things you need to consider, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, the... Basically, the type of engine, is it diesel, gasoline? Is it a propane engine? There's various fuels you could be running, uh, so you need to know that, what type of engine you want to test. But also, the type of test, is it, I guess, for research or durability running or trying out different fuel types? There's a whole range of tests that could be run. You're absolutely right. And, you know, when we talk about fuel, to your point, we're not just talking about liquid fuels. We're talking about gaseous fuels, too. Now, I would say that the gaseous fuel aspect of it is a smaller part of of the testing world, but it's still, you may be a facility that has to test with gaseous fuels, such as natural gas or LPG. You may have to have that, and that presents its own set of challenges. 
So if we can back up a little bit, keeping in mind when we're talking about the design like you brought up is understanding what you're going to be running in the test cell. No different than when we were sizing for a dynamometer or a cooling system. You want to know the size of the engine. You want to know the type of fuel you're going to be running. And one thing you really need to spend the time and think about is all the types of fuels that you will need to run now, but more importantly, into the future as well. Because we're talking about putting a system in place that if you had to redesign the system, be extremely expensive if you didn't have the forethought or planning to think about future expansion as far as the types of fuels, the types of different fuels you need on hand. So, you know, are you going to need to be able to run between three different types of fuel, four different types of fuel, whatever that number is? Because that'll then determine, you know, how many tanks do I need to put in? How many lines do I need to bring? How many fuel lines do I need to bring into each test cell to accommodate different types of fuels? There's different ways of handling it. Yeah, and I guess to some extent you can future-proof that as well. You can start laying in extra lines to bring more fuel in. In a previous situation, I've run... With, with a certain number of fixed fuel tanks to run a test cell. But even with that, we had to run a research fuel at one point and have a tank outside and bring in extra lines to, um, to deliver that fuel for a specific test. Right. So you can introduce, although structurally you need the tanks in place, you can introduce some flexibility as well to, to cope with variations. Right. And again, what you need to understand is the regulations, the, re- the restrictions in your area of what you can and can't do when it comes to fuel delivery inside a test cell. Because you may want to do one thing in regards to run a certain type of fuel. It may be prohibitive in your area. You There may not be a way around it where you are not allowed to run a certain type of fuel or install a certain type of fuel system. So it's important to do the research up front and talk to the people, the local municipalities, understand the regulations, local and governmental, of what you can and can't do or what needs to be done if you do it. Because so, so is that quite a, a lot of regional variation then? It's not there can be. not a federal situation, but I didn't realize it would be so varied well, that you'd need to look town to town sort of thing. Yeah, you do. Because in, in most cases, at a bare minimum, the local fire department is part of the acceptance of what you're going to do or what you're attempting to do. They have feed they have the ability and they they gets into the permitting process of making sure that what you're running is safe and you've protected and you're protected and you're protecting the people around you. Right. And I guess the whole discussion on test cell safety is probably one for another podcast. We get into extinguisher systems and uh, you know, behaviors and regulations and things. Yeah, it, the, the only way, reason I bring it up is is it has to be the number one consideration when designing your fuel system because you can spend a, a lot of time designing something that isn't going to be approved right from the beginning. So you really want to understand the right. constraints. So pull those experts in, those regulators, pull them in when you can and, and start understanding what you're going to have to do. Correct, correct. Okay. We've had that discussion. We know, we know what, what we can and can't do. We bring the fuel in. We're going to have some different fuel lines coming in, running maybe diesel and gasoline for different engines. Mm-hmm. So what do we do next? So let's back it up. So you got your tank, whether it be above ground or below ground. You've got a pumping system that brings fuel under a low pressure into the facility because okay. typically you're not allowed to bring, most regulations state that, you have to be below a certain pressure to bring fuel into a building. Okay. But once you get it into the building, then you've got to 
probably boost the pressure back up again. You probably have to add additional filtration. You may have to add conditioning to it. So that gets into the requirements of what the engine and testing needs are is what determines what that system inside the test cell looks like. So presumably what you require for that is bring the fuel in, as you said, a low pressure into some kind of header tank or some kind of local storage from which it can be then pumped to an engine at a higher pressure. Yeah, typically what happens is in regards to tanks inside a facility, there's very strict regulations with that too. So it's typically a very small tank and it's and it's protected. But yes, it comes into a tank, a smaller tank possibly, and then gets, that is with a pump system as well that regulates the pressure up to a certain pressure that the engine accepts or needs. And then it's also in some circumstances with development, you'll probably be conditioning that fuel. So you'll want to keep it cool and you'll want to understand also what the flow of that fuel is through a measurement device, whether it be gravimetric or mass flow to monitor how much fuel is actually flowing to the engine. Okay. So when in that, in that cycle, where, when would the conditioning take place? If we had to run fuel at a certain temperature, would that be within the low pressure system? No, that would, that would typically be in the higher pressure system. Okay. That would be what you would find inside the test cell, not outside the test cell. Okay, so that's going to have a, the ability to cool the fuel down, but it still has to come back to the fuel measurement device then? I'm just thinking yeah. of, the, of the routing through a test cell. Yeah, so once you typically once you get the fuel into the test cell, it goes into a smaller system, like we talked about earlier, and that smaller system is a recirculatory system. So fuel will go to the engine, fuel will come back from the engine into that same boxer system. Okay. It's so what the, again, this is the basic. So as you're from a measurement perspective, you're looking at how much fuel is going to the engine in comparison with how much fuel is coming back. And the difference between the two will then be consumption or mass flow measurement. Right. Right. And we need to have some idea of what to expect in that respect as we're starting putting these systems together. So if you're going to be running a large engine or a very powerful engine, you're going to have to have some, some pretty capable fuel delivery to, to feed the engine. The thing is with the secondary system, the fuel system that's supporting the engines being tested inside the test cell, that definitely is a lot easier to modify or upgrade versus the delivery system that's underground outside the building. So it would be good to size the system inside the test cell to as many different engines you think you're going to run and the types of tests you're going to be run. But it's not going to be 100%. You're not going to have 100% flexibility. So you're just going to have to size it accordingly. Because a too big of a fuel system running on a small engine is not a good thing either. No, but as long as we've got the, the basic fuel delivery from outside is large enough to cope with anything. Right. Then, as you right. say, you can then flex the internal part of that to be more tuned to the particular engine. Correct. Yep. Okay. So the fuel return, that would go back into the conditioning system after we've measured flow there and flow back. Right. That'll be conditioned and, and then reintroduced to the engine. Right. And then, and again, another way of measuring fuel is is they call them makeup tanks. So the tank that your the fuel's coming back into is it's measuring the level of that tank and the volume within that tank as far as how much being pulled out of it to be used in the engine and how much is coming back. So it's a it's a makeup tank. So the fuel's well that's why they call it makeup because it's being made up in regards to there's a level in it, 
And when fuel comes into it from the main system outside the building, once it fills up, it shuts off, and then you use that fuel. And as it gets down to a certain level, the valve opens up, lets more fuel in. And I've used systems which involve weighing the fuel to see how much is being consumed. Others are looking at flow rates, less accurate, but a lower cost solution is to look at the flow rate and, and measure to and from that way. Right. So in my experiences in multiple test cells, there are two different types of measurement, gravimetric and mass flow. So, and everybody has their preferences to what they use. Now, there are some standards or some EPA-regulated tests where it's, it has to be a certain type of fuel measurement, whether it be gravimetric or mass flow. When I worked in the locomotive industry, it was gravimetric, but we were evaluating and implementing mass flow because mass flow was a simpler way of doing it. And again, we were proving accuracy and repeatability. Gravimetric's absolute, but it was very expensive. It took up a lot of room. We had these big, large tanks with load cells on them to measure the weight of the fuel, like 100 gallons at a time. So it was very cumbersome and it took up a lot of floor space versus a mass flow device that's the size of a shoebox or whatever. Which is welcome to the locomotive world, I guess. Right, right. Different, different sort of scale to uh, some of the uh, engine testing we normally see. Yep. So circling back, I found in my efforts along the way in regards to fuel systems that I've worked with in the past, we spent 90% of our time working on detection and safety revolving around it because a lot of things change, a lot of things you have to consider. So, you know, you're, you're looking at how do you protect, how do you contain fuel if it leaks? Because every step of the way, you have to make sure you have containment, that it cannot leak beyond what is designed to accept the leak meaning it can't leak into the ground, it can't leak on the floor, it has to leak into something. So most fuel systems are double wall containment with interstitial monitoring. Right, so there's the actual design of the, the plumbing and the connections to make sure they're as uh, robust as possible, but you're also going to have some pretty capable detection systems that can pick up any change of circumstances very quickly. Okay. Right, right. And, and that's just from the liquid leak perspective. Then you've got to look at the vapor perspective. You've got to protect to make sure that if there's a leak, God forbid, inside the test cell, there's going to be vapors, and vapors are explosive. And you want to make sure that you understand, uh, have the proper sensors to detect certain constituents, such as hydrocarbons and gasoline. So you want to make sure that you have those means in place as well as, as additional, as a protection to make sure you've captured the fuel spill, the fuel vapors, anything that would cause or pose risk to ignition. Right. In some cases in the past with the racing world, we've had some unusual fuels which have, have additional health health uh, restrictions because of the nature of the constituents, but that's that's a different different discussion perhaps. Yeah, and, and if you want to go to a short story, if you want to go to the extreme side of things, fuel's difficult enough to put into a test cell and to make sure it's done properly and safely. That's a chore. That's a, a lot of work. Yeah. Once you switch over to gaseous fuels, it's even that much more difficult because I know in my experiences worth working with compressed natural gas, in some circumstances, the only way we could test would be outdoors because we couldn't get enough of a dilution rate on a safety perspective if there was a leak to dilute it enough where it couldn't be ignitable. Okay, so, so we literally tested outside. So actually, at the beginning, even then, accepting that it's not possible to seal the joints in some cases, and you have to live with the potential of a leak. 
Yeah, it's always the the safety first approach. The, the, yeah, the yeah. failure mode effective analysis that goes into place. Right. No, that's good. Uh, very good point. So I think it's it's an area where you've got to be involved both good planning and, and really good execution to make sure you keep everything safe and and well laid out. I think it's one of those cases where. If you're looking at multiple fuel lines coming into a test cell, it's got to be really detailed on how it's laid out Mm -hmm. and made as clear and as accessible as possible to make sure you can do the correct monitoring. Right. Just to finish up the story that I started talking about running outside, even though we ran outside, we still had to have gas detection. It was a focused sensor that was in the specific areas where leaks could occur, and we still had to be able to detect for it. So it's extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And it took a long time to get through the design process to get it approved and make sure we've covered all the bases. And yeah. that was for a much larger company that when I worked at it. Yeah. So in this case, I think it's one of those where you need to work with the regulators and your local authorities to make sure that any expertise you can call in, you should take advantage of to, to look at the uh, all the different opportunities. Absolutely. And it's the old cliche is if you don't know, don't. That's a good way to uh, to finish this one off. Thanks a lot, Mike. Yep, no problem. Thank you for listening to Dino Insights, presented by Fruid. If there are any engine testing topics you would like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at fruitdino.com.